Xgrowth has helped B2B tech companies design campaigns that open doors in their strategic target accounts, roll out targeted ABM programs, scale ABM programs, and select the right tool and tech stack for a successful ABM initiative. These are all things Xgrowth has helped their clients with. If you're interested to learn how Xgrowth can help your firm's ABM program, check out Xgrowth at xgrowth.com.au. That's xgrowth.com.au and chat with the APAC ABM agency. What's up, marketers, and welcome to another episode of the Growth Colony Podcast. I'm Liza from Xgrowth to tell you that each episode we bring in B2B leaders to chat about the yeses and nos to achieving those everyday wins in the marketing world. Whether you're new to the B2B game, working at a leadership level, or even just showing some interest, we know you'll love the episode. So grab a drink, get comfy, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm Shane Hoda with Xgrowth, and today I'm talking to Daniel McDermott, Senior Marketing Director for APAC at Mimecast, about how Mimecast and that team secured its own brand budget for the region from their HQ in the UK. If you work for a multinational company whose HQ is not based in the APAC region, you know that most of the brand work is going to be directed from HQ. The local team is mainly responsible for field work such as events, lead gen, webinars. We're going to talk about how Mimecast flipped that model on its head and added brand to their APAC marketing team's budget and responsibilities. On that note, let's dive in. Daniel, thanks a lot for joining us. Shahin, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, I mean, I've I've I followed you on on LinkedIn for a long time, and I know we've been we've been in contact there for for a while, and it's it's awesome to have you on the podcast. And I've witnessed the amount of brand work that Mimecast have been doing in the region. And this has always been a question for me because you don't see that very often in the in the APAC region, especially for, I mean, if you are a, um, a local company, that's a different story. Or if you're, you know, HQ is, is, is Australia or, or Singapore, that's a different story. But not very often with companies that are headquarters is outside here. So, I, I, I mean... I'd love to hear the story of how you convince HQ to give you the budget for to the local team in, in ANZ when it comes to branding. Yeah, sure thing. And look, I, I know it's a very fortunate and lucky position that we're in that we've been able to achieve this. And because as you say, brand for most of us in the field, right, who are far away from headquarters is often you might get, you know, some billboards at the airport that you take selfies in front of and share around internally, or you might get to wrap a tram in Melbourne or a back of a bus in Sydney or something like that. And a lot of it's not sort of honestly all that meaningful in many ways right i feel like a lot of the time it's to appease sales and sort of show internally that you know look oh look we're out in the market and look our brand is out there but i guess you know i think we all know that brands a lot more than that and i'm a big believer in i guess content marketing as a, as a key sort of pillar and strategy for driving that brand engagement of being able to create authentic stories be able to be I guess, one with your audience, be much more empathetic and be able to sort of have more of a conversation-based approach around building credibility and thought leadership, not just thought leadership of where we're going or what we want to do and sort of being a thinly veiled product pitch, right? But actually truly about the audience and what they're doing. So 
with that in mind and having had success of being able to deliver programs like that previously, I was fortunate enough to be invited to our sort of our global headquarters about four years ago, about six months after I started. We were sort of going, getting into uh, planning for the next financial year. And I used a bit of the old marketing adage of, you know, I know that 50% of my marketing budget's working. I only wish I knew which 50% it was. And I said, well, in my case, I know which 50% because the way the budget, and the budget was very healthy, but it was split very much into half. Half was within the field control, which is predominantly lead gen and events, right? And then half was brand and digital that was controlled by global and and we didn't have any influence over at all. And I said, well, you know, using that adage, I can tell you that the half I control works, the half I don't control doesn't. I'm hitting my numbers. Let me prove to you that we can do something different. And like I say, it was very lucky and very fortunate that the global leaders sort of went, okay, like, you know, we feel like, you know, you, you made a good point. We don't really know what we're getting out of some of this investment at the moment. If you can do something different and prove something different, then we'll give you sort of, you know, enough rope to, uh, to go and, and explore that and find out what that might look like. And with that endorsement, we sort of took over some of that budget and started to then build out and map out a plan for our basically, you know, our content strategy, but our thought leadership program and how do we want to deliver that in market and really started to craft a, I guess, a plan and a strategy around how we can deliver that and delivered that plan back to those global leaders to say, this is what we think will work. This is what resonates in this market. This is what the audience is looking for. There's a gap in the content market that we see that's, that exists in cybersecurity in Australia. Um, and this is how we think we can fill it credibly and do something different. And that plan got endorsed and we were able to sort of stand up our own sort of, I guess, masthead, if you like. It's called GetCyberResilient.com and sort of be able to create a blog from scratch. It was very much brought to you by Mimecast, but something that was in the voice of the audience in the marketplace itself. And we've been able to sort of extend and go from there. And it's there. We're sort of uh, three and a bit years live in market now and, you know, have, I think, being able to deliver that sort of, you know, grow that audience. As you say, you've sort of been able to sort of come across and see some of the work that we've done and some of the content that we put out there. So I think we are sort of, you know, the tentacles are reaching out. We've got a very, very strong and very loyal audience in many ways um, and, you know, continuing to grow, which has been fantastic. I love that. And yeah, I mean, I've definitely come across it and I'm not your target market, right? No. We're in marketing and and a bit different than than the cybersecurity space. Can you tell me a little bit about the expectation that you set for the team in the he- in the headquarter with regards to the results that they should expect, right? Because, I mean, brand is known to take time, is known that you do, you might not get the tangible results that you, you need. I know there are CMOs and marketers that would say, hey, don't come and ask me for ROI when we are spending on brand because that's extremely difficult, attribution very challenging. How did you how did you set those expectations for some of the some of the results and 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 uh, things to expect for the for the HQ when they're like, hey, here's we're giving you this budget. What were they gonna what were they expecting to see back? Yeah, and I think we've still had like our demand gen budget right and that so i basically had promised that we'll deliver quarterly demand results 
and we'll build an 18, 24 month view of where we're going for brand, which basically bought us a little bit of leeway, right? It was like, so it wasn't don't, don't deliver now. There was definitely the focus and the relentless focus on leads and generation and what we need to do and make sure that we're hitting that. So that focus could never go away. But by doing that and hitting those numbers consistently gave us that time to say, allow us to prove out the brand strategy over a longer period of time. So don't apply the same ROI rules to that spend as what we do for our demand gen spend and, and keep them separate in people's minds so that we could be clear on the expectation and the timeframes and the results that we would get from each. And that's then, for, I guess, allowed us to be clear in that two-time horizon view of how we're trying to achieve things. And I think that being clear on that has given us some, some airspace, right, to, to actually go and explore and to try some new things and have some things work and have some months that weren't so great. And, and that's sort of all part of that journey of building a, a content and a brand strategy that does take time. But that's okay. We're able to go through a bit of those dips and troughs and learnings and, and get better as long as we've still got our focus on the day-to-day business and continue to deliver the demand. So, you know, you can't, I think if you're going all one way or all the other, I think that's where a lot of businesses, you know, the pendulum swings too far. And then that's when, you know, pressure comes and questions around ROI and direct returns and those sort of things that we know is not possible get asked. And then something like a a project that we know has a longer term time horizon starts to get under those short-term pressures as well. Got it. Got it. Daniel, you mentioned that when you brought it up with the team, you said, hey, this is what I'm thinking and would love to explore this. Uh, you then went ahead and then did some planning that you presented to the team to further convince them to, to, to do the transition. Can you share a little bit about that plan? You, you talked about the content strategy being a big piece of it, finding a gap in the market. But would you be, can you share anything else with regards to what went into that plan to, to really drive the point home for, for HQ? Yeah, for sure. So actually the first thing that we did was needed to find an agency to partner with. So I actually put out a, an RFI process and went to market to get sort of four or five agencies to come in and, you know, give their pitch and give their point of view on how they would take us on this journey because I knew we couldn't do this alone. Also, like it's a part-time job of mine and there's nobody on the team that's dedicated to it, right? So the only way to stand this up was we needed some support and bandwidth to do that. So I think going through that process and making that selection gave us real confidence in the approach to take and what that looked like. And a big part of that approach was, was first of all, doing you know the traditional research that you need to do um, on these projects. And that was research that was conducted both internally. So we did internal interviews, what's working, what's not, what are the gaps, what do you like, what don't you like, all of those type of things. And also an external view of that as well to get the market's sort of vision, as well as a bit of desktop research around what else is happening in the market? What do we see from our competitors? What are we hearing out that our customers are paying attention to, that they like, that they're interested in? So basically looked at those sort of three elements of research of internal direct with customers in the marketplace and then sort of that desktop competitive analysis research to do a bit of a map around what do we see in the market here and where do we see the gaps and it was it was a very clear gap in 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 the marketplace and that was was that 
there's plenty of cybersecurity information out there, even sort of three years ago, right? But a lot of it from, I guess, vendors was all HQ driven and it was very vendor speak, right? So it was sort of like it was good stuff, but it was all about their products and them and how great they are, right? Then there was a couple of local sort of suppliers that focused around sort of the threats, the threat market and, you know, all bad things are happening and and that type of thing. So it was very much at that sort of threat level. What we saw was there was no sort of one in between that could take what's happening locally and that sort of that's bad things that are happening and giving it sort of, I guess, that extra level of intelligence and insights and analysis around why why what's happening and what's some advice to provide the market to to make things better in cyber and and how do we go on that journey together and so we sort of decided that that was the sweet spot from a content perspective that we could hit on that could bridge between sort of a big global story and and what's happening in in other markets and the sort of the threats and the the bad news stories that we hear on the ground and provide a bit of a bridge in between and and some advice for people around that. So finding that, I think, content gap gave us the confidence to say, how do we then go about filling that, you know, with a really genuine, authentic voice that really can resonate into this market that sounds like it's empathetic, that it actually is there for the audience, that it's actually part of the industry itself, right? Not just vendor speak. And as part of that, we really thought about that we needed to stand it up under its own sort of domain name rather than coming directly from a vendor itself to try to create. And and while it's very clear, it's by Mimecast and it's from us and, you know, we're behind it. We did stand it up separately to give it a little bit of sense of independence and a little bit of that sense of that it could have its own voice and was actually here for the industry because that's what we really wanted to do is create a two-way conversation, right? That it became a very much a a, a two-way market interactive sort of piece, if you like, of which I think we've achieved some, but not all of that vision either. Um, There's always more to go, but, but that gave us that opportunity to do that. And so we also looked at, you know, other sort of you know brands and sites that have done this around the world and done it really successfully of sort of standing up you know these sort of somewhat slightly independent sort of domains that can give that broader perspective and can you know and i think cmo.com from adobe was one you know for a long time that has been a you know i think a flagship in that space where it's done a great job of being you know it's an industry voice of what's happening in for marketers but it's very clearly brought to you by you know a very large marketing you know vendor that sits behind it and and that's okay and that's sort of the same type of thing of what we were trying to achieve here as well got it got it got it okay now thank you very much for that daniel i want to dive into some of the mistakes you've made as you've kind of ventured on this journey building that the mimecast brand and and Again, if I'm not mistaken, it's been it's been about three years that uh, yeah. you've been focused on this. So, what what were some of the mistakes that uh, that you and the team made, and and you uh, you kind of learned from them and, and improved the, uh, the 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 brand building process even further? Yeah, uh, like we said at the start, you know, it's trying to be quite altruistic around you know what we're trying to achieve. But one of the mistakes we made was still like I'm a demand marketer at heart and. You know, and at the end of the day, you sort of still want to get an ROI and stuff. And so we did try to create this, I think, too much of a forced bridge 
into demand generation. So we'd have forms on the site and you can, you know, get Mimecast content delivered to you. And it was really surprising, but nobody filled in those forms, right? So it was like they enjoyed the authentic content that we were providing, but they didn't want to take that leap into a product sale quite yet. And I think that that's... um, And there was nothing wrong, I think, with our intentions, but I think it was a bit like, you know, I think we were overreaching and and trying to, you know, to create that that short-term ROI because, geez, wouldn't that just be the cream on the cake, right? Um, I think is what we thought. And that didn't work. And, And I think we had to really just sort of reset ourselves and our expectations and also what that user journey and experience should be like for somebody sort of consuming the content and not necessarily be quite as you know deliberate of like oh now we now that we've got you here would you would you like to buy something are you sure you wouldn't like you know we've got plenty for sale so um i think we needed to to move away a little bit from that and, and hold true to what we know we were trying to achieve out of what we were doing but you always have that, you know, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we could, you know, get get a few leads out of it too, right? Interesting. And did you, you know, did you turn that engine on at a later point or you've just left it so that you kind of leave that decision completely to the customer? How has that decision evolved over time now? Yeah, there's, there's some opportunities for for that bridge to be there but it's not as in your face and as demanding as what it was and really now it's more like are we getting engagement from this audience and then are they doing things with us as Mimecast as a company and products and you know whether it's existing customers and buying more or getting into new accounts and how can we sort of make that attribution you know not as direct right and and really look at it from an overall engagement perspective rather than from a, you know, they did this, they filled out a form, we called them up, we got a lead, you know, like the traditional sort of follow the bouncing ball lead flow to much more how do we step back from that and say actually what does our engagement look like with our audience, where are they coming from and how how are we seeing an overall trend in the business and sort of trying to marry those two together a bit closer. Got it. Uh, thanks. Thanks for clarifying that. The flip side of my question is what are some of the strategies that worked well? And again, we've talked about the content. We've talked about the separation of the brands. We've talked about multiple different things, but are there, are there strategies that really that are top of mind for you that, hey, this worked really well for, for us and I'm glad we tried this? Look, I think the big thing that stands out to me is um, I mentioned that we wanted it to be a two-way sort of interactive piece, if you like. And, and that's hard to do in a blog format. And so what we wanted was, you know, guest authors and get people's views in. And it's hard to get people to, to write and even to give us ideas and we'll write on their behalf, right? Um, even to get to that was difficult. I think what's changed that and, and given us access to having more of a, a two-way voice and getting a lot of input from the marketplace itself is standing up the podcast, it's amazing how willing people are to, to come on and, and have a chat and talk about their experience and their knowledge and what they're seeing and the challenges that they're facing. And, and they've been really honest, you know, completely, you know, engaging, amazing people, generosity of their time. And that has given us, I think, that voice of the market much more so than what we could achieve through the written format. So the podcast has sort of taken a life of its own and every second week, 
out of sort of 40 weeks of the year, we'll have a, you know, a guest from the industry on, a subject matter expert, and be able to dive into their world and hear things from their perspective, whether that's a end user, you know, chief information security officer and, and what's happening, you know, at at their organization and the challenges that they face and how they work with the board or how they actually try to get people to care about security and all those sort of things to, you know, expert academics to people from other vendors who have got points of view on, you know, different parts of the security stack and what's happening in the trends. So, you know, we've had quantum computing and all of these sort of things and, and even down to the mental health of of the cyber profession and, and the challenges that are happening in that space and the unrelenting nature of, of cyber and what that means. So having these voices come in, I, to me, has changed the entire sort of, I guess, construct and the conversation that we can have it has become very inclusive of all of those things that are happening in the market and it's not us trying to you know reposition it or tell that story it's from them and i think that that has uh been a huge success as you know it takes a lot of work to to run a podcast on a regular basis content is a hungry beast right um but it is you know you're always on that lookout you always need to find more people but like I say, the generosity of people's time and willingness to, to get on board and spend time with us has, has been fantastic. And that's something I think we'll, you know, we've learned a lot from being part of that as well. And we'll be forever grateful for those people as well. I love it. And, and, and Daniel, so gr- I mean, it's awesome to hear that the podcast has worked and, and, and it's, it has got so much traction. Do you do anything afterwards with a podcast? Does that turn into like articles or kind of snippets? How does that, how does that transition after podcast is recorded? And maybe it's obviously it's published on, on some of the, uh, the, the podcast distribution platforms. What happens afterwards? Yeah, we do a little bit and I'd say there's probably room for improvement, right? Um, so we've put the transcript up. So, um, you know, you know, so therefore, like the full transcripts there and from an SEO perspective, that helps in that as well. We ha- do some follow-up articles as well, but not probably not as much as what I would like to see sometimes. I think that's an area for us that, you know, like like why not repurpose this into an article as well? Like, you know, with a slightly different view and, and it, it takes a different tone as well, right? So I think there's that. I think, you know, some people have thought that, is it duplication of content? You know, oh, well, it's just the same thing. I'm like, well, it sort of is, but people like to consume things in different ways. So I think there's that opportunity for us to take more of that and, and do more of those things that you said with it and turn it into, you know, other formats because the content itself is so rich and the people have been so generous with their time. So we may as well make the most of it. Yeah, very true. Very true. Got it. I want to also hear for for a last question before we jump into rapid fire questions. What's coming in the in the in the next few months? Uh, you know, twenty twenty three is around the corner. What is the plan for building Mimecast brand further in the region? What's what's in store? Yeah, there's definitely a few things. So one, like we started as as an Australia New Zealand focus. Now we're an APAC focus and in particular into Southeast Asia. So how do we ensure that the content and brand and thought leadership approach is applicable into that market? What do we keep the same? What do we need to change? What new things do we need to add to make sure that we're resonating into into that Southeast Asia market and not be just, you know, an Australian voice if you like. So I think that 
something very conscious that we need to work through and expand upon in the coming months and years ahead as we grow as a business into these regions. And so how do we continue to have that you know, runway ahead of us from a thought leadership and brand perspective as well. So that's certainly one that is a, is a big one for us. And, and I think it's going to take some learning, right? Um, so that's a, definitely one that I'm sure we'll make some mistakes, we'll trip up along the way, but uh, looking forward to sort of hearing the voice of, of Southeast Asia come to life a lot more um, across our, our content platforms as well. That's awesome. And that is, that is one, that's a big challenge, right? I mean, you have, uh, there, there are some, some countries that I feel like are easier than others. And then there are some that are very different. So, um, so that's, uh, best, best of luck on that front. Thank you. Have you read the state of ABM and APAC report yet? If you have, you'll know that 59% of marketing leaders are intending to increase their ABM investment in the coming year. Even bigger news is 0% of survey respondents are going to decrease their investment. It's an exciting time for ABM in the region. Discover the state of account-based marketing in APAC today. Download the full report at abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. That's abm.xgrowth.com.au forward slash report. Daniel, I want to ask some rapid fire questions before we wrap up. And I want to, I want to start with, uh, with a resource question. So what is one resource? It could be a book, a blog, a podcast, a talk, whatever it is that has had a profound and, and had a fundamental impact on the way you work or live. What comes to mind? Uh, can I give you two? Um, I, I, yeah, like, give me the old, more the better. Yeah. I love. I still am a massive fan of the foundation. To me, is this Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm or inside the tornado? I think as a tech marketer, it's his, he's the godfather of of what we do, and we all sort of aspire to to be inside that tornado and having that hyper growth. So that's one that has always sort of stuck with me. At a more local level, a one that people may not have heard as much about is Hugh McFarlane, um, the founder of a company called Align Me, wrote a book called The Leaky Funnel, and it's just it's a great process of thinking about how to actually manage that lead demand generation and funnel stages from an outside in perspective um, and having that buyer's journey so uh, those two have sort of shaped a lot of my thinking over a long period of time and then then I try to sort of build upon and use some of their inspiration in, in what we do I love it I love it okay question number two if you could get one advice to b2b marketers what would it be it may sound obvious, but it's uh, put yourself in the shoes of your audience. And, you know, as marketers, we probably think, oh, well, of course, that's what we do. But the reality is we all get tied up in our own businesses, in the industry, in the technology, in everything else that sort of seems to get in the way. And the more time that we can spend understanding actually what it takes to be a buyer of our technology and what they're going through and their challenges the better off we'll always be. We can connect with them far more authentically and, and in a real, very real way and make a difference and have an impact on them. And like I say, it sounds obvious, but I think, you know, often often it can be scary, particularly in technology as well, right? Like, like we're not technologists and they're technologists. So it's sort of like, oh, maybe we feel like we'll get caught out and we won't know something that's okay. Like they're also very, they're people, they're forgiving, they're, they're willing to teach and learn and teach us and we can learn along the way. So don't be afraid, but yeah, put yourself in, in the shoes of your audience. I love that. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's, 
Easier said than done, for sure. Mm. Question number three, who are some of the influencers in, in, in this space or in general that you follow and, uh, and, and you keep, keep track on? Yeah, I, I mentioned a couple of them at the start. Also, I guess from an overall business and sort of technology strategy point of view, Peter Hinson out of um, out of Europe, who's written sort of some books like The New Normal and and uh, what is it, The Next Tomorrow, and these type of things is really interesting as to sort of the future of work, the future of business and innovation, and and really sort of groundbreaking thinking. If you ever got to see him speak as well, like perhaps the best keynote speaker I've ever seen. It was just awesome. Really brilliant. So, yeah, Peter's definitely one, as I said, sort of still followed Jeffrey Moore and that. Um, another one that people may have heard a little bit of, but uh, there's a guy called Dr. Michael Wu who uh, wrote a book around the social of science. Um, the science of social, sorry. The science of social. And it, it was a good one for me as a bit of a laggard and um, not necessarily up with um, all of uh, the latest social media trends. But he talks about how how the social media platforms actually go about driving influence and engaging people and enlisting followers and how if you get that mindset you actually can grow a brand and actually grow a business it was really just yeah it's a nice simple model but it's uh it works really well and and like i said somebody for who needs to keep up with these trends um i learned a lot quickly which was good I love it. Thank you very much for those recommendations. I've, I've definitely taken note of, of those and, and uh, we'll be checking them out. Last question, Daniel. Last question is what excites you about B2B today? Uh, I definitely think the whole area of sort of intent data and the dark funnel and, and that and really around, I guess, I really am impressed by tools like Demand Base and Sixth Sense that basically look at bringing in all of those sort of signals and making sense of them and actually being able to democratize your data across your sales, marketing, BDR teams so that people can make smarter decisions about where to go. They can converse with each other around where to prioritize effort and how to divide and conquer and be successful as a team. Um, And I think that uh, these tools provide great opportunity to really break down and change the whole sales and marketing dynamic from sort of a, you know, a, 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 par- a parallel process of sort of handing over leads and hoping that something happens and then sort of looking at this sequential notion of that to actually working together on the same set of data and then driving success for the business uh, um, as one. So I think there's huge scope in that. And I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg of how to sort of break down some of those silos and, and use the data as the, uh, as the way to get there. Tip of the iceberg. I love it. That's uh, yeah. That is definitely a hot area, and there's a lot happening there. And uh, and I, I'm I'm right there next next to you, watching it very closely. Daniel, this has been an awesome conversation. I, I very much enjoyed this chat. Is I think there's a lot of great insights, especially from kind of thinking about running brand in in APAC and AZN market. So I just want to say thank you so much for your time, and thanks a lot for coming on the pod. No problems. Really appreciate it. Today's episode of Growth Colony was produced by Alexander Hipwell and Liza Maywald. It was edited by Dave Samito with additional editing by Liza Maywald and music arrangement by Alexander and Liza. Special thanks to Tina Wabe. We couldn't make this show without you. Growth Colony is hosted by Shaheen Hoda, Director of Growth at Xgrowth. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Do you think you'd be a great guest or just interested in a chat? 
send through an email at podcast at xgrowth.com.au. That's podcast at xgrowth.com.au. That's all for now. We'll catch you next week right here on Growth Colony.